Welcome to um, episode two of Dumb Question. I am sitting here with uh, Dr. Bill Gibson, and uh, uh, you're the science fiction author, right? Um, no, Kent. No, I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not actually... Did you think you had that person? Yeah, i got to go through my notes, and i got to change everything I, I wrote. Oh, sorry, man. All right. Well, so tell me, what do you do, then, if you're not the science, great science fiction author, Bill Gibson? Well, I, I, I do do actual science, like experiments and, and, and stuff. For, for real science, not to pretend science? For real science. All right. In fact, I'm, I'm a clinician scientist, so I, I see patients... Um, at BC Children's Hospital, patients with rare genetic disorders, and then we try to solve those disorders in my research lab. Neat. <laughs> that, that, I think answers questions one and two. <laughs> I was going to have you describe what you do in the most technical way, and then explain it to me like I'm five. Oh, and, well, and I, the, in the most technical way, uh, we take DNA samples from the peripheral blood and use high-throughput sequencing techniques, uh, including whole exome sequencing, to uncover... Uh, novel and de novo mutations that explain the rare genetic disorders. Is that technical enough, or that, should I get more technical? That's, that's, can you go more? Okay, let's go one more, one more level technical. One more level technical. Well, uh, much of the work that we do uh, is done at the, the uh, BC Genome Sciences Center, the Michael Smith Genome Sciences Center, um, and the whole exome technique, uh, sequencing techniques are next-generation, uh, high-throughput sequencing um, that uh, uh, we then compare the sequences from the patients to a reference genome uh, that's co a composite of uh, a large number of individuals looking for rare uh, coding mutations in the DNA that are thought to be functional and uh, in many cases uh, will cause disease. These are called pathogenic uh, single nucleotide variants and occasionally um, different types of DNA variants called indels. Uh, that's the main thing of what we do. Neat. I think I understood next generation in that. That was good. Now, give me all that again like I'm a five-year-old. Uh, we, we try to help people who are born with a change in their DNA that makes them sick. We try to figure out what that change is and try to figure out how to make them better. Perfect. Because I think my audience will fall somewhere between those two extremes. Sure. <laughs> well, that's great. So uh, uh, what, what's your current uh, research project that you're that you're working on right now so we that? have a couple of research projects on the go right now uh, we are looking for rare genetic variants that impact on human body weight um, so that would be truly genetic causes of uh, overeating and obesity uh, we are also looking at syndromes that cause a generalized overgrowth of the body so that make people unusually tall with unusually large heads and occasionally also uh, make them obese um, one of our recent successes was identification of the gene for a disease called Weaver syndrome. Um, and we found out through studying uh, three different families affected by Weaver syndrome that the gene was a known cancer gene called EZH2, or for your American listeners, EZH2. <laughs> uh, so what are the, some of the symptoms of this Weaver? Weaver syndrome is a genetic disorder that causes intellectual disability. Um, and there are also specific features to the, to the face, a, a relatively prominent chin with a, a crease under it, uh, as well as a, a large head circumference. So these individuals have very uh, big heads. They tend to be quite tall. Um, and for reasons we don't fully understand, their bones mature faster than their 
what we call their chronological age. So someone with Weaver syndrome who was seven years old might have, on x-rays, might have bones that looked like they were you know, from a nine or a 10-year-old. Mm. Uh, the unfortunate thing uh, is there's also a, a susceptibility to some forms of cancer, um, which had not previously been explained, but when we found out that it was mutations in the EZH2 gene, that was already a known cancer gene. So we were able to, to link that specific problem to the gene that we had identified. Interesting. So are all the growth uh, genes kind of in the similar uh, area and that's why you're looking at obesity as well as these other syndromes or, or are, they, are, are these markers common that you can, that you can find between them? Uh, sometimes there are common markers that we can find between them. I mean, we're still looking to link these uh, networks of genes into discovering exactly what causes growth and in this case is overgrowth. Um, and then trying to separate out what causes normal growth, you know, growing in, in height, for example, and then what might cause abnormal growth, particularly in tumors and, and, and cancers. Interesting. So is there any uh, like working cures? Like when someone is, like, are we actually restructuring people's DNA? Is that the goal? Or is it to find uh, the problem, say, in utero and, and that sort of thing? Uh, well, we're not able to restructure people's DNA just yet. So the, the first step um, in treating any kind of disease uh, is figuring out exactly what it is and getting a correct diagnosis. So the uh, gene test that we've developed enables that correct diagnosis for Weaver syndrome. At the moment, there are uh, treatments and occasionally surveillance. In other words, we might follow someone to see if they had developed a tumor or, or were starting to develop a, a small tumor and hopefully catch it early. There are not specific treatments that can fix all the issues with Weaver syndrome. But uh, as with many rare diseases, the key is to do more research in how it, how it works. Because this is all still relatively new science. Like the genome mapping and tracking specific cases, this is all last 10, 15 years, is it not? Well, certainly identifying the genes for rare genetic disorders is something that we've been doing since, you know, for decades. Uh, it really started to ramp up in the, in the 80s, though some major discoveries had been made prior to that time. Why we've really entered the accelerated phase of gene identification is the, the advent of various forms of what we call next generation sequencing technologies allow us to go through all of somebody's genes at one go rather than picking individual genes and sequencing them and then going back and trying another gene. We can basically get all the genes that we know of at a, at a reasonably affordable cost. The cost has been decreasing um, for the past several years. And um, so now it's possible to get the known coding genes for a price of between $2,000 to $4,000, depending on the, the uh, center that's providing it and how detailed a look you want to go through after you've actually got the data. So in fact, the, the bottleneck is now looking at the data. It's not generating the sequence itself. That can be done quite quickly. Interesting, because before I imagine these uh, sequence uh, machines were rare and expensive and, and hard to get to and hard to get time on. And now... They're still expensive, and, and depending on how many of, the, of them you have, it can be difficult to get time on them. Uh, but we've been very fortunate in, uh, in access to DNA sequencing through collaborators at the Michael Smith Genome Sciences Center in Vancouver, yes. Yes. So is, this, is that like the big one in Canada or North America? Like how does this... 
Uh, there, there are three big uh, next-generation genome sequencing centers in Canada located in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. Um, there are other major sequencing centers in uh, other countries throughout the world, and a lot of private companies are now getting into the game as well. Because they're cloning people, right? Like that's what we're working towards. No, there are there are uh, there's more speculation than truth <laughs> to uh, rumors of human cloning. Isn't that right, Duplicate Bill? Yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Sorry, I only brought in one chair. I, I hope you can work out some sort of sharing process between the two of you. Oh, we can swap around. There, that's much better. All right, uh, so Duplicate Bill. Uh, <laughs> You also uh, write, you actually do write uh, some science fiction stories, although you are different than the famous Bill Gibson, you are, you are a different Bill Gibson who writes, also writes science fiction stories, which makes marketing your work, I'm sure, very difficult. I really don't make much effort to, to market it. I don't necessarily want to compete in that space with someone who's much more famous and a better writer than I am. Uh, I have written two plays that were produced by the Spectral Theatre Society, and those were science fiction plays, but, uh, well received by the audience that attended them, which was mostly friends and family. But there you go. Such is theatre. <laughs> um, so as the podcast is called Dumb Question, I tend to ask... These are great mugs, by the way. These are fantastic. You can't, the on-air listeners will be able to purchase Dumb Question mugs uh, on a store, a site which I will post shortly. Um, I figured it... Uh, to compensate for the otherwise unprofessional surroundings, we should at least have quasi-professional talk show mugs. So dumb sounds great. <laughs> so a dumb DNA question. Um, given that like the human genome is a, a more or less fixed length, uh, I know there's people with extra chromosomes that sort of thing, but in general it's a certain length, and there's a finite though astronomical number of combinations. Uh, and not every company there'd be whole combinations that we know would be unviable. Uh, would there not be like a fixed number of, though astronomical, number of combinations a person could even be? Is that? I don't know. You can say that the number of combinations is actually fixed. I mean, with approximately twenty-seven thousand genes. Uh, in the in the genome, each person, of course, has two copies of most of those genes, except for the ones on the X chromosome. So you're talking, uh, you know, around 54,000 genes per person, but a very large number of variants within those genes, and also variants in air, the spaces between genes. There's a recent major international project called the Encode Project has released the uh, sequence of um, areas of the genome that were previously thought to be junk DNA, but that are, are now known to actually have an important uh, role in controlling different genes. So when you add up all of that variation and effectively multiply it together, um, it would be very, very difficult to come up with a, an actual upper limit on the, the possible variation between humans, particularly when you add in um, something called structural variants or copy number variants. It's possible for people to have actual whole genes missing or duplicated copies of genes. And although that can be associated with uh, genetic disease, sometimes those extra copies of genes um, have uh, different effects on, on how someone might live their life. So uh, variation in how someone metabolizes a medication that they might 
uh, that they might take, or even in how they might perceive color, because the genes for color vision are, are duplicated um, in the genome. All of these things contribute to the vast wealth of uh, human diversity. So I, I'm, I'm not convinced there's actually a, a finite number of combinations. Hmm. The reason I was asking, just as a, as a personal experiment, I was thinking, uh, assuming life on other planets, for example, and okay. they, they would be based on, say, for, you know, based on, they would have the same physics and chemistry that we would have, so conceivably they would have the similar DNA, RNA type structures that are found here, what they would, this is the Star Trek question, is why do all the Star Trek aliens look like humans with funny foreheads? Okay. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe there's only so many combinations that are pro produce viable you know, like there are so many quadrupeds and although there are very different maybe on the surface, genetically they are more similar than, than dissimilar. And so I was kind of thinking as this is a thought experiment going, well, there's only so many combinations that are viable, even though astronomically large number, uh, perhaps life on other planets may not in fact be that different than life here just due to the, the chemistry. <laughs> Right. Well, if we're going to get into these areas of speculation, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that this is completely outside of my area of scientific training. Fair enough. Uh, well, nevertheless, from a, from a science fiction perspective, uh, if, if we're going to try to bring some real science to the science fiction, it, uh, I, what I would say is, first off, we don't actually know until we either make an observation or do the experiment. So if we go to another planet and discover that there is a, a different chemical molecule that can contain information the way DNA and RNA does, then we would know that other combinations are, are viable. Hmm. If we were to go to other planets and find uh, a DNA-RNA protein-based chemistry for the life there... What I think to be most likely is there would probably be a, diff, a, a different genetic code that the actual codons coding for uh, amino acid additions within the proteins might not be exactly the same. We, we won't know unless there's some specific you know, energy minimum to having the different codons re read in a certain way. But so you, it's conceivable you could have a, a, a DNA-based chemistry that had a different coding sequence, but that produced proteins that were very similar. Mm. Now, were we to go to other planets, uh, I think we would pro and find life there. It would probably be pretty radically different than the life that is on Earth now. And simply, if you look back through Earth's history, there have been all kinds of periods where, where again, life was radically different. You know, classic example being the era of the dinosaurs where a, a completely different type of life that we recognize as somewhat similar but we would say it's very different from from ours uh, uh, was there the interesting thing is whether the complexity of life uh, would be the same as on earth because earth has gone through periods of explosions and reductions in biodiversity so we could conceivably plant, find a planet that had an incredibly rich very diverse ecosystem or planets with very impoverished ecosystems um, so it, we would be arriving at a particular snapshot in time assuming that various technological hurdles could be overcome yes yeah i was always curious about like just the math of of, of those large numbers of combinations because um, my, 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 so my biology foundation is very limited. Uh, I'm a knee bone connected to the leg bone. So, <laughs> hence, hence the series of dumb questions. Understood. Uh, uh, it's my understanding that uh, plant uh, DNA... Is it plant? Plants have DNA. DNA yes. Okay. Uh, is actually like much more uh, complicated in, and more elaborate than, than mammals, say. Uh, yes, it is. Now, granted... Um 
some of the theories of why that is are, are, have to do with the fact that plants don't move, which actually means that in order for plants to survive, they don't have the option of moving away from a predator or moving away to a, different, a, niche or, right, yeah. to a different climate if the climate gets tough, which means that in their genomes, they rely uh, a lot more on chemical defenses um, and, and uh, you know, modifying their growth and so forth to, to survive. And then, of course, on uh, developing innovative ways to disseminate their uh, pollen and, and, and gametes to colonize new areas. So they, they have taken a very different evolutionary path than motile organisms have taken. Hmm. Because I, 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 like I said, I've heard that they're very different, but it's a very good explanation as to, as to why. I never, hmm. never, never thought about that before. So what got you into into research genetics? What was your your the seed? Well, I guess, I guess the the seed was uh, back even in in high school. Um, we had an, an excellent uh, science teacher by the name of Fred Speed, um, and uh, he really uh, explained biology very well. And we had a, a, a wonderful section on genetics that talked about the genes for body patterning and uh, from some of the discoveries that have been made in fruit flies, including the antennapedia gene that actually uh, converts what would otherwise be antenna into what looked like legs coming out of a fly's head. And that was, although that seems like a really weird, unusual mutant, and I suppose it is, it that thing that looks strange to the eye has an underlying biology that is very interesting. Hmm. And, and it... It at, at, at an instance demonstrated how it is possible for entirely new traits to arise in an organism, some of which might be adaptive, and how new species could form in a what would otherwise be considered a relatively short period of time. So that got me thinking also about genetic differences between people. And even when I was going through medical school, it was always with a view towards doing some type of, of genetics, medical mm. genetics or, or research genetics. And so as I've come out the other end of, of residency and, and PhD training, um, you know, that's still as a, a, an interest that um, uh, really has a hold of me. So that's, that's what I'm pursuing is the, the making genetics relevant to human health. Nice. So, it's like high, so you were exp uh, got excited in high school and we kept going with that. That's good. Yeah, I mean, just kept that, <laughs> kept that passion alive. So much... So many new interesting discoveries continue to be made that, that uh, I've, I've, it hasn't been hard to keep the passion alive, let me tell you that. Well, that's good. Like, so you, you are keeping, it keeps you interested in those new, new findings and new things to dig into? That's right. So there's, there's lots of uh, interesting insights uh, to human medicine that can be gained from um, studying other organisms and studying people with uh, traits that are very different than, um, uh, than average. So we, we find out a lot about the average by studying uh, people who have unique traits or studying the outliers, as it were. The, the statistical outliers, you find the, 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 odd, the odd person out kind of thing. Uh, yes, although people generally don't like to think of themselves as odd. I, I mean, statistically, though. Yes, not, statistical. It's not, it's not a moral judgment. It's not a value judgment. Understood. Um, uh, I've always kind of thought that uh, people who do study genetics of... 
uh, of people and, and looking at different syndromes, that type of thing, and there's different markers in the face and whatnot that when you're walking through a crowd, you probably see that crowd differently than, than, than other people. You probably go, oh, they, they might want to talk to someone about... <laughs> Occasionally that does happen, but mostly I'm, I'm just impressed with the, the diversity of humanity and human faces and, and um, you know, all the different biological traits. It's just fascinating to me. And, and, and then how we can learn about those traits and, and use that to, like I said, improve human health and, and you know, enhance life that way. Because it's my understanding that most variations are, are neither positive nor negative. They just have some neutral... Uh, output. Uh, the people may have an extra chromosome, and they will go their whole life not knowing that because there's not necessarily a, 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 a an ailment associated with that. Is that a true statement? Uh, it, would, it would be rare for someone to have a whole extra chromosome <laughs> and have no consequences from it. But yes, a, a lot of uh, a lot of variation between individuals is uh, is not well understood. Um, broadly speaking. A lot of geneticists divided up into common variation and rare variation. Okay. Common variation has mostly been studied from the perspective of disease. So can you accumulate a certain number of minor genetic variants of small effect that collectively add up to a, a, a predisposition to a cancer or an inflammatory disease? That's the, the way common variation for, has been viewed through a disease lens. Okay. For rare variants, it's now known that a lot of rare variants that we find in, in people's DNA have appeared relatively recently. They're relatively new mutations, present only in, in the, the recent few generations. And so most of those we think do have some uh, negative effect, although it's probably a, a small one. Um, in, in for both the case of most rare variants. Now then, if someone is born with what looks like a genetic disease, we then, of course, look at their rare variants really closely. Where I think we still have a lot of room to move uh, and, and a lot of interesting uh, biology to uncover is in studying the genetic variants that do encode really common traits. So, you know, what is it that controls... Um, really controls the color of someone's eyes or the, the, whether their hair is curly or not. I mean, there's lots of papers out there, but we really haven't worked those things out definitively. And, and I think that will be quite interesting to really understand um, why people are, are different in, in traits that are... Are not, not considered diseases. Right, not, of, not disease traits, but just ordinary human variation. I think we have, still have a, large, uh, a long ways to go there. That's interesting because, like, I remember reading recently, they were recently now, probably five years, they cloned a, a cat. They cloned some cats. And they, be, they were, had completely different hair, uh, hair colors than, than the source material. Now, part of that could have been the variation in the clone. But part of that could be, well, that's such a small variation that we, we see two cats that are, seem to be different, um, not species, but uh, breeds. But actually, they're much more similar than we, than we actually think. Well, and, and, and a lot of variation is also controlled by something called epigenetic modifications, which is like uh, putting a jacket over the DNA that controls whether the genes are turned on or turned off yes. and, 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 and when that occurs. So certainly some, some variation in hair color in experimental systems has been uh, attributed to epigenetic modifications. The other thing to know about hair color is that uh, it can be strongly influenced by... Uh, uh, the movement of the melanocytes that occurs uh, during the embryonic period. So a lot of these um, uh, specific patterns, like uh, a classic example is the calico cat, where you have 
two different uh, cell lines, uh, and this is this is controlled by which of the X chromosomes is turned on or off. And if you have different genes on the two different X chromosomes, uh, then some cells will express one and some will express another in a female cat, and then you get a different mm. a, a different pattern that would be. Uh, I believe specific to an individual. So were you to clone a calico cat, the actual coat patterns would be, would be different because they're, they're not, uh, they're not under exactly the same genetic control. There, there's a, a, a role for stochastic variation in there. Yes. I, I've learned so much because <laughs> I was kind of pictured DNA kind of like uh, a series of ones and zeros that would define like say a music file. And you, know, you change the pattern a little bit and you made out a little bit of noise or a little bit of something, but still it's the same song. And if you change it too much more, then it becomes something completely different. But clearly there's multiple layers of encoding and, and, and replication going on that, that my small infantile model is not taking into account. Certainly the analogy to a musical score is an apt one and one that's frequently used where you, where you take a series of what are otherwise simple building blocks and you can produce a lot of complexity and beauty based on recombining those symbols. So. Neat. So, so is there suspected that there's some lab out there building something un, unwholesome a la Island of Dr. Moreau? Are we, are we even close to that? To start splicing, I mean, I know they're splicing in different uh, genes from different species and creating glow. In the- they like making things glow in the dark for whatever reason. Uh- <laughs> Actually, making while making an animal glow in the dark, that's certainly something that has been done um, since the the discovery of green fluorescent protein and various other fluorescent proteins. It, it's something that it's possible to do. Um, the, the the question is better to ask is why is something being done? So um, I would I would be hesitant to speculate about whether there are uh, uh, labs out there doing truly nefarious things with with genetic engineering. Um, it, all of the labs that I know of personally are are doing it for the best of reasons to to really understand what's what's going on uh, genetically and under uncover fundamental biological insights. So what advice would you give to, say, somebody, uh, the, a young uh, Bill in high school somewhere, and he is thinking about maybe getting into the field of genetics? What would, advice would you give to uh, such a, a person? Okay, well, I guess the, the, the first advice I would, I would give is make sure you nurture your passion. Um, so uh, don't let roadblocks get in your way. You climb over them, you tunnel through them, you, you do whatever you need to do because everyone encounters roadblocks in their career and, and if you let them get in your way, they will always be in your way. The second thing I would say to someone who is, who is interested in biology is uh, figure out whether your talents uh, really are experimental. If, if you really like working with your hands and doing experiments and, and figuring out things that way or uh, whether your talents are uh, more in the com- in the area of computing, and that's what, because the, this new field called bioinformatics um, has really exploded and really um, uh, really enabled a lot of very amazing things. So, looking at the data that's coming out of experiments and, and extracting information from that data. So, it's not to say that it's impossible to do both, uh, but it's the currently the training streams are all relatively separate in that if you you go in through a computing background and then get a PhD in bioinformatics, 
Um, the bioinformaticians who, who have done that have, have done very well and, and made a lot of contribute to, to biology. Because as you're saying, the, the problem now is not the, the uh, shortage of the information, it's the, it's the processing of it. We, we have a lot of, of data to, to be analyzed. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, when I was going through high school, we were still working on Commodore 64s, you know, <laughs> God rest their electronic souls. Um, so, you know, but, but now that knowledge of programming and knowledge of designing the algorithms, I think, will be critical to new biological and medical insights. So, um, you know, working with uh, experimental organisms or doing clinical research um, is exciting and fascinating. Uh, but if, if someone's talents really are with computing, don't let that turn them off a desire to do uh, to do biology because a lot of brilliant biology can be done as we say in silico now mm. instead of in vitro in vivo or ex vivo um, so it's a lot, a lot, it's a lot in Latin you just threw at us you <laughs> well in, in, in silico is uh, a within, mock Latin meaning in your in a computer yes in, <laughs> in, in a computer within the silicon uh, in vivo is in, in living experiments and living organisms yes. ex vivo outside of a living organism so removing a tissue sample and looking at it and then in vitro from the Latin within glass uh, is doing experiments in petri dishes cultured so that's something else that I would I would uh, say to a, a, an aspiring young scientist is really think about what you observe in the world because observations are the critical thing for science. You, you make an observation, you think about possibilities that might have led to it or that might result to it from it, um, or possibilities that might result from it, and uh, that's what leads to hypotheses that you can test. You, you then ask a question of the universe and say, well, I wonder whether streaking bacteria this way versus that way is a better way. And then you test it out and you find out which one works better. Hmm. Scientific method. Hey, who knew? <laughs> so uh, I think we're at the end of our hour. Uh, and I know you have a flight to catch. And I know how panicky I get on flight days. So I will uh, release you back into the wild, as it were, to go off and, uh, and enjoy going home. Uh, but I want to thank you for coming down to the uh, luscious uh, Dumb Question Studios and uh, having a chat with me. Uh, thanks very much, kid. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot.